0: Uh, he has been a, um, a monk at St. Minard. He was ordained to be a priest in the Diocese of Memphis and then discerned to be a monk uh, at uh, uh, St. Minard uh, in the Benedictine Order. He uh, then completed his studies at the University of Leuven in Belgium. I went to visit him a couple times. It was great. And uh, then came back and was appointed uh, rector of, of St. Minard Seminary. And he has been the rector for about 13 years. Uh, so he, and has done a wonderful job uh, at St. Miner's. So I'm going to stop talking. And just remember after this, next week is who? We have a Franciscan. Father Luke Mary Fletcher from the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. He is in uh, New York City. Uh, and he uh, is going to he's going to be in the process of finishing his doctorate. The week after that is the Holy Cross Father, Father. Yeah, Smith. I don't know. Uh, he's, he's very uh, well-known. He used to be the rector of, of uh, the seminary at N- Notre Dame, and then finally, uh, Sister Mary Madeline from the Dominican. So I hope you all come back every week. Uh, without further ado, Father Dennis.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Father Richard. I was so glad that I was able to kind of crawl up here. In my age and decrepitude, you, you know a person has been a pastor a long time when he shows up in a track suit to give the introduction. Just say it. And stop flipping me off from the back, OK? <laughs> Thirty-three years, Father Richard and I have known each other. We met on the very first day in the seminary, and we've been the dearest of friends all of those years, and I'll take my 20 bucks at the end of the thing. (laughs) I'm happy to be with you. You know, after a a year and a half of COVID, I'm happy to be anywhere, frankly, but I'm especially happy to be with you and uh, happy that uh, we could have the, this is a big crowd. He said, I don't think more than five people will show up. I said, and those are the five people that show up to everything, you know, that live actually in this room. I am, uh, though, happy to be with you. Things have been, things have been a little crazy for a while, but hopefully now we're getting back to normal, or at least what might be kind of normal. What am, who am I kidding? At St. Mindrid, nothing is ever normal, but we're happy uh, to be doing what we do. I'm glad to be here uh, to kind of kick off this series. Uh, that way, of course, you have me. Uh, to compare everybody else to, so they'll look really good. I would say your guy next week, his beard is very long, and so uh, I, I tried to grow mine out a little bit this week, but it just didn't seem to work. Uh, the kind of nature of the, 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 uh, the talks that you're going to be hearing during the course of these next four weeks, next three weeks after this, really center on the theme for this month. And I I was very happy uh, to see that you have put this together. I'm glad to see that people are getting back together. I'm glad to see that that we're the move again in the church. This evening, I would like to focus a little bit on the question of forging a complete Catholic identity. And I, I hope that the reflections that I have this evening are going to be helpful. You know, I'm a theologian, and I I apologize for that. Uh, I'm a theologian. Sometimes I talk like a theologian. Sometimes I think like a theologian. But I hope that this evening, some of the things that I have to say are going to be much more practical for you, much more applicable to your life. And so I'd like to begin just by looking at one passage from the Gospel of St. Matthew. And for those, uh, this, is, this is from that book called the Bible, which you may have, oh, this thing rolls. That's, uh, this is, I'll go over here. And then I'll go over here. And then I'll go to the piano and play a little while. I won't. Uh, this is from the Gospel of St. Matthew. It's from that book that's called the Bible. You know, they say that, you know what they say, Uh, Protestants know where everything is in the Bible and Catholics know where the Bible is in their house. Uh, That's that's somewhat true and it's kind of funny but it's not really true because Protestants (laughs) may know where everything is in the Bible but Catholics wrote the Bible so there we go. So I want to look first at a a, a passage a short passage from St. Matthew's Gospel and if if you go to the second part it's there at the beginning. Uh, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. Oh, I thought you were turning pages, but it was just your lunch that you were. Oh, that's a good. Uh, Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. 13 is a long chapter in Matthew. And I'll just read it for you uh, to kind of set the tone for what I want to talk about this evening. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, we give praise to you this evening for the joy of being together to serve you and to seek a greater understanding of our faith through your word. We ask that you bless our time together and help us always to follow your path, which you have set out for us in the gospel and in the church. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord forever and ever. As we, as we begin this evening, I, I always like to start with a little confession. Uh, you know, I think it's always best if the, the speaker puts himself or herself in a position of vulnerability. So, you know, I like to tell you something that might be a little embarrassing, not, not about your pastor, but about me, uh, that might, you know, make you, you know, think, he's a real person, you know, more or less. He seems to be okay. Uh, And so I'm going to confess to you this evening that I have an addiction. I am very, very seriously addicted to YouTube. And, And that's bad. That's real bad. I am an inveterate watcher of YouTube videos. And I will tell you this, this has been a great week for YouTube videos because you may or may not know that this week is the World Fat Bear Week. So fat bears, like the, you know, furry kind, fat bears uh, are celebrating themselves this week. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's not a bad place, you know, for me to identify, perhaps. Uh, if you watch the YouTube, you'd know that, but. I have particular addiction to certain kinds of YouTube videos. And so, for one thing, I began with BB videos. Uh, does anyone, is anyone willing to admit that they know what a BB video is? BB, BB is a, is a, a little monkey, and she's about this big and she dresses in human clothes. And she has all c- now you're shaking your head. Come on, let's fess up. She she has all these adventures with her friends, particularly her duck friends. <laughs> I can watch BB videos <laughs> for like hours on end. It's 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 awful. It's an addiction. And then from from BB, I moved up to cat videos. Now Many people, I think, are in involved in cat videos because when you look at the cat video, you think, oh, look, they've had 1,800,000 views on this particular video. And the little kittens are doing the craziest things. For example, you may not know uh, that kittens hate cucumbers. And there's a whole subgenre of videos on YouTube about kittens and cucumbers. Look it up, I'm just telling you. You know you know that some of you know this already. And some of you are thinking, I'm going to put that into my search engine. <laughs> and then lately, though, I've been watching a, a, a series of videos from a, a, a video person called the Dodo. And the Dodo is about abandoned dogs who get picked up and then rehabilitated and then they're happy dogs. And, you know, all of <laughs> it's like, you know... That I. I I spend about 12 hours a day watching these videos <laughs> and I, I, I'm willing to admit it. I, I was teaching the other day and I was lecturing right away and I was rec- lecturing on apocatastasis and I was looking at this little screen which we have in our podiums because we're very up to date at St. Michael's and I was looking at the screen and then I pull up one of my BB Vit ooh BB, what's BB doing today? Forget apocatastasis, the monkey is on a rampage. These things, you know, silly, really silly. But last week, there was a very interesting story uh, on the YouTube. And it was in the regular news, too, so this isn't like some kind of crazy thing or something that, that, you know, you don't know very much. It was a story about an Arkansas diamond field where someone found a nine-carat diamond. Now, this field in Arkansas... it it sometimes, it's usually a couple times a year it gets into the news because they allow people to come in, they allow people to, you know, spend a little money, look for diamonds, which are seemingly all over the place, and then they get to keep whatever they find. And this particular person found a nine-carat diamond. And it's very interesting because the process for finding diamonds, I, I think is very interesting, you know, sometimes they're found in in caves or in rock formations but often they're found like in streams and so you sit by the stream day and night with this little pan with holes in it and you just look through all of the dirt until finally hopefully sometimes you will find something meaningful oh it's your bells I thought it was somebody's phone oh I was gonna ridicule you but now I don't have the chance so, in the process of finding diamonds, then the the it's it's very. Is that like on the f- grounds or is that like in this room? Oh, okay, that's good. Lord have mercy! It's as loud as your pastor. My goodness. <laughs> finding this diamond, then it, it gave me a kind of an image that I want to put forward for you this evening on the ideal of discipleship because discipleship in so many ways is like searching for diamonds. Discipleship is something we hear a lot about. You hear a lot about it. You go to church. Your priests talk about discipleship. We talk about discipleship. There's all kinds of material on discipleship. But sometimes I wonder if we really understand what discipleship authentically is. And so what I would like to say at the beginning of this presentation tonight is I want to give you just a very very clear image of discipleship and one that hopefully I'll be able to carry through through a few uh, a little bit of a discussion. Discipleship is life in Christ in a complete Catholic identity. Life in Christ in a complete Catholic identity. Now, that's, that's a very unusual kind of thing for us to think about, perhaps. Many of us, I believe, in our country, in our culture, we're very used to thinking about discipleship as something, well, that might be a part-time vocation. You know, we go to church, and I'm sure you do. All of you must go to church, or you wouldn't have been bribed into coming over here this evening. We go to church. We engage in church functions. We might be involved in some activity or other. We, we work uh, to kind of build a community such as this one, which is, you know, I, I talk all the time about Catholic communities, and almost every time I do, I offer... Our Lady of Mount Carmel as an example of what a Catholic community should be like. I think that it's important for you to keep that in mind because all of us, all of you, have a a, a great interest in in the church and what you're doing. But we also have an ideal in our culture. And, and, And I hesitate to raise it, but it's something that we refer to in our culture as the separation of church and state. We, that's something so intrinsic to our way of thinking, so intrinsic to the way in which we approach the world, the separation of church and state. And, and what that means from a, a secular point of view is that we have a life in the church, and. It's a very vibrant life in a community such as this. But we also have a life in the world. And it may be the case, it may be the case, that those two things don't really come together. In other words, we go to church on Sunday. We're involved in our activities. We may say our prayers at home. But we don't necessarily see that church life, that church identity as something that, gets into every aspect of every other part of our life. And and again, I think the culture in which we live is built upon that idea of the separation of church and state or the sacred and the secular. Now, I'm thinking now about a theologian. And here you say, here he goes because we're going to be lost and then we're not going to care, but we can't really get out of here because they'll see us leaving. We don't want to be the first to leave. It's going to be bad. We can only hope that the lights go out. <laughs> I'm going to talk about a theologian, a, a fellow by the name of John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman. You many, some of you may have heard about him. St. John Henry Newman said, and, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm, you, know, you don't want to read the whole book. St. John Henry Newman said this. He said, The idea of the sacred and the secular is a lie. He said, it's a lie. There is no such thing as the secular world. You say, I know there is a secular world because I go to the mall all the time and I engage in this thing all the time and I read the news all the time. There has to be such a thing as a secular world. He said, there's no such thing as a secular world. He said, Here's the thing. Now, I want you to to just think about that. Don't fall asleep right now. Later, you can fall asleep. If God is God, which God is, then there is nothing in this world which he created that is not under his very particular power. If God is God, there is nothing in this world that isn't under his power. Now, that's a a very important thing for us to think about because we we can often, just just because of the way the world tends to think, we can often find ourselves falling into the trap that we have this world which God is in control of and this world which God doesn't really care about. But that's not true. God has created everything, and so everything is under God's domain. Everything is in his power. And we, in enlivening our discipleship, right? In enlivening our discipleship, we must must make that a living reality in each one of our lives. And that's where, that's the challenge. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Discipleship in Christ is forging a complete Catholic identity. So let's go back just for a moment to my image that I I pulled up of looking for diamonds. So if we could, you know, all get in a little bus provided by Our Lady of Mount Carmel even those of you who are not from Our Lady of Mount Carmel, we get in a bus, we go down to Arkansas, I don't know why, but we're going to go and look for diamonds. I would say discipleship is like searching for diamonds, and there are four stages. See, I've learned this over the years, that you almost tell people how many stages there are before you start. And that way, when you get to number four, they think, we're almost finished it's not even dark yet we can get home and let the cat out there are four stages of discipleship and I'm trying to keep this image of the diamond in front of us and I would say that every Christian no matter how new you are and no matter how long you've been in this in this game every Christian must go through these four stages. The problem, of course, is that sometimes we might get stuck in one or the other of these stages, when we really must get to the point where we've gone through all four. Okay, so let me just now talk about the four stages. So the first stage, again, looking at that image of looking for diamonds, is sifting through the mud. The first stage is sifting through the mud. So I think about all those people who go to that that park in Arkansas and they they crouch down on the side of the banks of the river and they just keep sifting through mud. The mud flows through this little stream. They catch it in their little pans that has holes in it. They shake it and nothing. And then they do it again and again and again. And, And many people, as we know find nothing but sometimes there is the diamond sifting through the mud is a process that all of us must engage in our discipleship and 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 when I say that I I, I can give it a theological name theologically it is called discernment how do we discern our lives what is important to us and what is not important to us what we're going to do and how we're going to act and how we will not what is significant in our families and what needs to be put aside in our families this is the process of discernment it's a it's a very very tedious but serious process in other words it's asking a question and the question is fairly simple but the realization of the question is fairly complicated and that is when I confront my life when I look around myself when I think about what I do when I examine my family very closely when I look at the job that I have when I look at the neighborhood in which I live when I look across the board what here's the question what is Christ and what is not? Because so many of us, really almost all of us, probably all of us, spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of emotion pursuing what is not Christ. And I, I, I want you to think about that. We spend a lot of time pursuing what is not Christ. And, and maybe that thing that we're pursuing is BB videos. On, although BB has a very Christ like nature <laughs> for a monkey. A lot of us spend a lot of time pursuing what is not Christ. What do I mean by that? What about your job? What about the values you pursue in that job? What about the tactics that we sometimes use to accomplish the ends of our jobs? What about our families? What about the time we devote to them, or maybe more importantly, the time we do not? You know, uh, one of the things that sociologists tell us, and I'm sure it's not true in the communities of Carmel, Indiana, but one of the things sociologists tell us is that family life, as we think about it as an ideal, exists no more. The ideal is still there. We have an ideal of family life, and family life is usually like the, the flippin' Waltons, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if you're old enough to remember the Waltons. And then they would come home and good night, Mary Ellen, good night, John Boy. They would eat around the same table. They would go to the same church to worship. They would do the same things. They would do their homework. They would play games together. They would help with the farm work. And that was all beautiful. Beautiful. Unfortunately, it also instilled in the American imagination, in particular, an ideal of family life. And it's not just them. It's, you know, leave it to Beaver and all that stuff, you know. I mean, you know, nobody looked like June Cleaver. Nobody dressed like that and did any kind of housework. Come on. They didn't even have a real house. It didn't even have a wall on one side of it. You know, I love Lucy. Come on, give me a break. But we become inundated into these images, and perhaps they are valuable images from the past, but they're not what our families in general are much like today. Today, how many people have meals together as a family at home? How many people, you know, don't have children going off to this activity or this activity or God knows what activity? How much do we really, really know about what's happening in our families but nevertheless the interesting thing is we're, we're segregated we're going off and doing all these things we, we never get together but that value remains it's very interesting because it, it sociologists have done a lot of thought about this that we, we value a certain thing that we are not making real and that is togetherness as a family and, and when we don't do that, it makes us feel bad. Oh, in other words, I'm a bad parent because I can't do this, or I'm a bad child because I don't do this. And, and these kinds of things become part of this larger picture of what we might call sifting through the mud. And, and it's hard for us to think, oh, I'm going to put this away, and I'm going to put this away. I was talking to my secretary, and she's very wise, and she really runs the school, but (laughs) the thing about being the principal or the president is if you have a good secretary, you don't really have to work at all. (laughs) And you could put gin in your bottle, and nobody (laughs) even knows it. Um. I was talking to my secretary and she has this kind of family and I'm like what in the heck is your family? Why why is it so perfect? It's like perfect. And I'll tell you families aren't very perfect. You know it's amazing to me because uh, in seminary a lot of people think that oh if if the if this fellow's in the seminary, he must come from some kind of perfect family or so no he doesn't. Do you know that 75% of the seminarians come from broken or mixed or second families. That's a very large number. And some of them, I think, are in that position and they all have vocations, don't get me wrong, but they're in that position because they're, they're trying to fix something that they missed in their in their life. It's a, it's a very odd kind of phenomenon. But this, this ideal, then, is that we want things to be perfect, but we have trouble realizing kind of perfection. But my secretary, she's so interesting because they have a f- big farm, and she has three children, including two teenagers, who are teenagers. And, th- you know, there, there's very little that's worse in the world <laughs> than a 15-year-old boy except, of course, for a 15-year-old girl. And so she's got two of them. And I'm like, why did you have two of them? And she says, because we're Catholics. And I said, but why did you have two of them? Anyway, these are like, these are good kids. They have little jobs, but they make sure they come home and the family eats together every night and then they do their little chores, You know, they they work on the farm. They feed whatever they feed, pigs or whatever. I don't know. I've never been there. I don't want to go. But, you know, so is it chickens? I don't know. That's what they do. But she talks about this all the time. Like, my kids really, really work. And the little one who is like seven years old has like a thriving business in tadpoles. Whoever knew there was a (laughs) thriving business in tadpoles? I don't want to know. My point is it's not impossible for us to create a life that mirrors kind of this intentional discipleship of Christianity. But it's becoming much harder. So sometimes life can be very hard for us to put together because we don't feel like we have the tools for making it happen. And so what happens in our lives is they become kind of roughed up a little bit. And we find ourselves in positions that we don't want to find ourselves in. And we become parents who have to deal with situations with our children or sometimes our grandchildren that are, are quite difficult. Or we become children who have to deal with situations with their parents that become quite difficult. And all of these things have one name which we can attach to them, and that is sin. Our lives are inundated in sin. And I'm not trying to be negative, I'm trying to be real. Sin prevails in human life. And I would say that one of the great, great challenges we face in discipleship is that it's much easier to be a sinner than it is to be a saint. It's much easier to be a sinner than it is to be a saint. It's not much better to be a sinner than it is to be a saint, but it's much easier. And, and we begin to tell ourselves, and I think this, this is everybody, including Benedictines, who are almost perfect, but not quite. <laughs> Here's what we tell ourselves. We're good enough. You know, we're good enough. And if things don't go well this week, and you know, eh, I'll just put three extra dollars in the collection plate on Sunday. clears everything up. We call that development. We don't. Uh, <laughs> my point is that, that we begin to make the little bargains and what have and, and sin begins to take over. And sometimes it takes over very seriously. You know, we become accustomed to not even naming things. It's, oh, that's not sin, that's just the way people are. Or that's not sin, that's you know, that's, that's human nature. You know, I, I think about the great theologian. And I won't mention his name because you might not think he's so great if I talked about him. Anyway, he was a great, he was a great theologian. He once said that when people sin, the frequent response to sin is, oh no, all too human. This theologian said, no. When we sin, it's not all too human. It's not human enough it's not human enough our humanity is not a negative thing and sin in our humanity may have had a relationship in the past but the baptized need to understand that sin is not our way of being you know and this is this is is very interesting because now i'm going to kind of turn the table again all of us have sinned everyone we know from scripture All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, right? Well, we know that we're all sinners. We know it. We know it. If you don't know it, go to confession. Father, Father Richard will tell you all about it. We've all sinned. We're all sinners. And here's something that I learned this from seminarians. Uh, Seminarians are they're they're the best. Seminarians, they 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 love to tell me about themselves but the stories that they tell are quite spruced up. In other words, we get the good stuff. We get nice, polished little stories. And I'm like, were you born a saint? Are you St. Francis of Assisi? Because the way you tell your life story, there's no sin in it. You haven't done anything wrong. And they don't want to tell you, and no, nor should they have to tell me. And I know I know what people are like, I know what young people are like, I know what boys are like, and they're all of those things. And they've all sinned. And I say something to them, and I'm saying it to you tonight, they don't believe it, you might not. That sometimes the thing that makes you the best disciple. Of Jesus Christ is your sin. Not that you do the thing, you shouldn't do it, but that you learn from it. You understand that thing. And you know, I say that for priests especially. A priest is no priest if he doesn't understand his own sinfulness and appreciate it. Why? Because it it makes him compassionate to other people who are sinners. We're all sinners. You know, but sometimes the things that we need to learn and the things that we learn in life can be very nicely focused, not by the virtues that we've displayed, because frankly, you know, who you know, virtue, eh. Sin, however, can teach us. And but my point with this is now that we're finishing up the first stage, you're thinking, oh, no, Lord, he's taking 30 minutes on each dang stage. The first stage is sifting through the mud, learning to profit even by our sin. The second phase is what I call polishing the new stone. In in theological language, we boringly call this profession. So in the first stage, we begin to understand ourselves, discernment. In the second phase, we're beginning to turn that internal understanding outward to people, to others? How do we make our life a complete gospel? Or we might say it conversely, how do we make our lives completely in the gospel? Now, now this is, is something I think that we have to, to really think about. We could We could talk about sin and we can talk about our past and we could talk about our failings and we could talk about our foibles, but it's very important that we begin to learn that the reason that we think about those things is to move in a different direction and and the first phase after this kind of discernment is to begin to profess who we are as Christians. Now this can be this can be very frightening because when we do this in our lives, and see this is why some people never get to it. You know, people are fine, you know, kind of lift, li- you know, living in the, in the thing of just kind of running the sin and, and, and virtue around on a wheel like a, like a hamster. When we do this second phase, though, we have to, to do one thing. We have to identify the virtue and give up the vice. Identify the virtue and give up the vice. Now, identifying the virtue, even living in the the virtue, can be very significant. But giving up the vice can sometimes be not only problematic, but sometimes impossible. I can't get away from that particular whatever. For example, like habits. Like habits. What are the habits that I have in my life? And here, here we are. This is the thing. Habits are so entrenched in our lives that we often don't even recognize that we have them. For example, how many people, you know, when they're alone for a minute, they're kind of, you know nothing to do for 5 seconds and this this is the thing <laughs> baby is on here <laughs> how much time a day do you spend with this thing how much time <laughs> my secretary who is the fond of all wisdom she <laughs> she had to get her father-in-law a new phone but he only wanted a flip phone do you know how hard it is to find a flip phone in this flipping world today? Well, it was hard. She, she finally found one, like it somewhere, I don't know, Dollar General, I think. Uh, but, you know, how, much, how, many, how many times a day do you pull this thing out and do nothing and check? Did someone call me? No, because no, people don't call anymore. Did someone send me a, a, an email? Nobody sends emails anymore. Now what do they do? They... they they text you, that's getting very old fashioned. Father Richard and I text all the time, but we're old. Now you have the Twitter and the Tweeter and the Instagram and the Fancy gram and, and somebody else's grandma and grandma gram and you're like all day long. This is this is an interesting thing. Not because it's you know it's bad in itself, but how much of our lives do we spend here? Rather than here. How much time do we spend talking to people on this thing rather than talking to people? You know, and and part of our life is putting away our habits, and that might mean things that we're not even aware that we're doing, or it might be more serious things like pornography. You know, pornography is the number one sin. Committed by men, according to my calculations. How do you get away from that? How do you put aside that sort of thing? Gossip. You know, gossip, gossip is 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 something we do so naturally. You know, and, and here's how it always happens. And this is how it happens in a seminary. it always starts like this. Every time it starts the same way. You know, I don't mean to gossip, but, (laughs) and then you do. You know, I don't mean to gossip, but, you know, and that's the other priests. You know, if you want to get into a gossip festival, get into a group of priests, let me tell you, we're not perfect. We're nearly perfect, but we're not. You know, how many times a day do we spread gossip? You know, these are the habits that we have to begin to think about, how we can not do one thing and choose to do something else for example places you know how many of us have ever had the experience of not really having very much to do or to think about and start driving (laughs) which is like if you're not going to think please don't drive uh, and start driving and end up I don't know at the mall and how many of you it's like and you know usually what you're doing is like you're walking around the mall and you're like, well listen to this, Frida, I don't know if you knew what happened the other day, something. And then you look around and you're like, where the hell am I? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm in a mall, who the hell is Frida? I don't even know her. You know, how many of us find ourselves looking at people? You know, this is difficult. And I, I'm going to tell you, this is a, a serious kind of story. We have a young man in our seminary right now, just you know, sometimes they they just make me cry and they certainly put me to shame. Because they, they're so good and some of them have struggled so much. And this one young man who he he is he's so good and, and he struggled so much comes from a family that has a Pentecostal preacher for a father. You think he gets a lot of support for his vocation? No. And day after day, the father berates him, belittles him, tells him that he's going to hell, that he's not worth anything. And you know what? He stays in the seminary. And you know, he came to me the other day, and he, he was in tears. He says, now I don't know what to do, the latest thing, you know and I said you know what the Bible tells us that we are to honor our fathers and mothers and sometimes we have to honor them by saying I love you but I really can't have anything to do with you right now and does that sound harsh it does and sometimes that's what we have to do even with people that are very close to us you know there are many people very close to us who may not be very good for us and we can love them and honor them and treat them with respect, but we don't have to place ourselves in their path and listen to them. This is a lot of discernment and a lot of profession that we now know who we are and we are going to begin to systematically change the habits, the places, the people in our lives that are not who we are. And and, and sometimes that's going to be very easy, but many, many times it's going to be very hard. The third, you're thinking, thank goodness, the third. We're to the third. We're way past the middle now because we're right at the beginning of the third. Set the diamond. Find it, polish it, now set it. And, And this is what I call the phase, theologically, of intentional discipleship. Intentional discipleship. Now, if you have ever had, you probably, have you ever had Sherry Waddell here? No? You need to get her here. You don't have a lot of money. You can get her here. She's she's expensive. (laughs) We tried to get her to come to St. Minor. I said, well, we can't afford that. Anyway, Sherry Waddell wrote a book, Intentional Discipleship and it's a simple book it really doesn't mean anything i mean i mean it's, it's like she came up with some great insight that you know she's going to sell a book now what she basically said is that prayer discipleship living the life of a christian requires minute by minute by minute engagement with christ every single thing every single thing In other words, discipleship is like a multifaceted diamond. But it it encompasses every aspect of your life. And and I I talk about this a lot when I do, this is the thing, what is that? Uh, Who is Mrs. King and why does she have an office on the stage? I'm easily distracted. I'm... Attention deficit, it's just awful. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, I <laughs> look at my notes again. Oh, this is crazy. Uh, a multifaceted diamond. Every aspect of our lives. You know, and, and, and we talk about this in the Benedictine world. We don't live it, but we talk about it a lot. And what we do, we talk about is that when you get up in the morning, No matter what your state in life, your first thoughts must be for Christ. Your prayer must be for Christ. And the prayer is not, oh, God, is it already 9 o'clock? Boy, am I hungover. Uh, Anyway, everything that we do then becomes a prayer and, and meditative. So somebody said to me, is there a Christian way to brush your teeth? I said, of course there's a Christian way to brush your teeth. There's a Christian way to take your medicine." There's a Christian way to shave. There's a Christian way to take your shower, to get dressed, all of these things. I, I recently finished a book. I just re- recently finished two books, and one of them came out last week. It was a very, uh, this, is com- this is, well, it's kind of an aside. It really isn't. The book is called Father Manners. Came out last week. Barbara Mitchell in the back has a copy of it if you want to see her. Father Manners, is a book of etiquette for priests, because priests in my experience are some of the most ill-mannered people I know. Not here, of course, at Our Lady About Carmel where everything's perfect. It's like you step into the cloud of unknowing when you enter the parking lot. Priests are so very, very poorly mannered. Anyway, so I wrote this book for priests to have better manners, but I also wrote a book that's coming out hopefully in a couple of weeks Uh, It's a prayer book for Catholics. It's 900 pages long. And it's a prayer book for your home. It's a prayer book for prayers for getting out of bed and prayers for brushing your teeth and prayers for your meal. Not only your prayer before dinner, but prayers for preparing dinner. The point is that you're saying, oh, this is crazy. I'm not going to walk around with that stupid book all day long. But my point is that, like a multifaceted diamond, our discipleship has many, many kinds of images that it produces. And, and what our task is as disciples of Jesus is to put every component of our life into the context of our faith. Whether that's family life or school life or your neighborhood or your job to put all of those pieces into the context of our faith, so that there's nothing left of the secular. There's nothing left of the secular. There's only the sacred. Why? Because God created everything, and everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. I'm sacred, you're sacred, the exit sign is sacred. And you're saying, it's certainly going to be sacred in a minute because I'm walking out of this joint. This is the pattern of our lives. In, In the Benedictine world, and I'm sure for many of you as well, we have a very preferred form of prayer called Lectio Divina. In Lexio Divina is a, is a very ancient form of prayer, a very good form of prayer. And in prayer, in the, in the context of Lexio Divina, there are four stages. One is reading, Lexio. In other words, you read a passage from the Bible or from one of the saints or whatever. The second stage is meditation. The third stage is prayer. And finally,. Contemplation, just listening, sitting back and, and listening. So, reading, meditation, prayer, and contemplation, or lexio divina, that's a, a form of prayer, but I would be willing to say it is also a form of life. Because our lives as Christians and our lives in discipleship have these four phases as well. The first one is reading, looking at our lives and reading in our lives the signs. Of God's presence finding in our lives the signs of God's presence and then making that of conscious meditation for us and and where we can't see God's presence we either have not looked hard enough or that might be something that we have to put aside and then finally prayer you know prayer I, I, I say this all the time and I probably said it here before but you know I, I forget and you forget you know, Catholic prayer is, is really awful. Okay. Just <laughs> in general, Catholics don't pray. Many of them. Not here, of course. A- Elizabeth Seton, this is true, but not here. Goretti, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> not here. Prayer, Catholics, Catholics don't pray, Catholics say prayers, and they're very good at it. You know, before mass, not here. Goretti. Seton, Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how it goes: so what happens? You know, you sort of start, in the, you get in the church, and everything's nice. It's quiet in that church. It's beautiful. It's very quiet. It's lovely. there's a little scent of incense still hanging in air. Not here uh, because you have to get in and out of that parking lot so fast. Uh, but. Other places, you know, is so quiet. And then about uh, 15 minutes before the beginning of Mass, right? What do you hear?
0: Is it on?
1: Is this thing on? Herb, is this on? Okay. Something like this on. Okay. You know, and frequently I might be sitting in the confessional at this time, you know, because people do go to confession, and I'll hear that, you know, is it on? Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Father, who art and heaven, hallelujah. And I'm like, oh, a pig auction? No, it's the it's the Holy Rosary of Our Lady. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord of with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now the hour Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord of with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Because it's always the same every time they say it, right? You know, and so this is Catholic prayer. You know, I always say here's a good rule of thumb: think about your own prayer. Oh, Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Think about your own prayer, and then think about this. Prayer should be 10% speaking and 90% listening. Why? Because God has infinitely more to say to us than we do to him. Now, do your examination of conscience and see how the heck you turn out on that one. Reading, meditation, prayer, and then contemplation. Which in the Lexio is is silence. It is listening to what God has to say, and I will tell you this. You know, people say, you know, it's 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 almost a, a, a it's almost a cliche. You know, God answers every prayer. He just sometimes says no. Can we even accept that? You know, they, oh, God doesn't answer my prayer. No, God doesn't want you to win the lottery because it would make you a sinner. A greedy, hoarding little sinner who would end up on hoarders. (laughs) Or my lottery dream home. Finally, you say, finally. Four, show off your diamond. So after we've found it, and after we've polished it, and after we've said it, now it's time to show off. And this is what we call in the Catholic Church evangelization. Letting other people in on the good news that has changed our minds and our hearts. Letting people in on the good news that has changed our minds and our hearts. I'll never... When I was a young when I was a young warthog <sighs> how it just gets into my mind, I don't know. When I was a, when I became a Catholic in nineteen seventy. Uh of course, my parents and I were the only Catholics in our family. My father had fifteen siblings and we had a huge family and they were all preachers, and they were all ministers, and they were all Baptists. And, you know, those, that's like the most lethal combination. It still is. And I'll never forget when I, the year after I became a Catholic, and I, I got a gift for my grandparents. And I, I gave them, each one of them, a rosary. And they opened the box, and they looked at it, and they were like, and they they said it in Baptist words, but this is how it's translated. What the hell is that? (laughs) It's a very oddly shaped necklace. I gave them that, and you say he was very naive. And I say, somehow I thought of that as an act of evangelization. They had a picture of Protestant Jesus in their house. (laughs) And they had a picture of the guardian angel in their house. You know the guardian angel, you know the kids walking across the bridge, the big old guardian, scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Because I'm like, I don't want a guardian angel. Just yesterday, I don't want a guardian angel (laughs) if it's that big. And they put those rosaries, one on each of the pictures. And somehow over the years, I've read that as acceptance. And they never offered any criticism of my becoming Catholic. They never talked about it at all. Evangelization means being willing to share our faith everywhere even when perhaps it won't be received. Evangelization means examining everything in our lives for its Christian content, even covert Christian content. Evangelization means daily conversion of deciding that my goal in life is to be better today than I was yesterday, even if it's just by a tiny little bit. And as I go through life of moving closer and closer to the divine reality that I was made for, but sometimes forget. Evangelization means quality penance, quality confession, quality communion all-intentional. In other words, our lives as Christian men and women is about forging a complete Catholic identity in everything that we are and more importantly, no, I'm backward, in everything that we do and more importantly in everything that we are. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that land. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found the one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had And bought it. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Get out.
0: Put those um, on the carts back there uh, so those help us uh, get ready for uh, school uh, cafeteria tomorrow uh, for lunchtime. And also, um, if you at the doors, there'll be a basket. Uh, we're uh, asking for a free will offering if you have uh, to, to support these talks. Who knows if these continue to go well, we'll continue to do them. Um, past this month. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, But uh, your support would would help us do that. Don't forget next week is Father uh, Luke Mary Fletcher, the Franciscan Friars, and we'll be talking about every person has a place in God's plan. Uh, And that's again at 645. Uh, So everyone have a good evening and thanks for helping clean up. God bless.